0: This is the 6th chapter of Matthew, verses 19 to 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This uh, Every Given Sunday is a, a new series we'll do for the next few weeks. Steve will begin... This morning, in this series, we talk about the practices of the New Testament church. And today, I'm very excited to hear more about the practice of worship. There is a dividing line somewhere. I've taken an informal poll, and I think it's at around the age of 40. So if you're 40 or older, then you probably would recognize the name of this company, Rand McNally. All the old, you know, all those that are old like me, you're laughing like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. If you're under 40, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Raise them high. Yes, all the college kids. Okay. Rand, Rand McNally makes maps. <laughs> Some of you may not even know what that is. It looks like this. This is a folding map, right? And when I was a kid, you could go to any gas station and you could find one of these that mapped the state that you were in and that you could find the maps for all of the adjacent states that bordered the state that you were in. I love these things. They were fantastic. I could never figure out how to fold them back though. I oh, don't know. I always got that wrong, so I'm not going to unfold it because I'm sure we couldn't get it back together. I mean, you can still get these things for free at these uh, the plazas when you drive into a new state. I think about like on uh, uh, driving south to Texas when you go across the border. There's that big, beautiful welcome plaza, and I'm sure they have Texas state maps available for free there. You know, so so before these GPS guided, internet, cell network connected, smartphone interactive maps with real time traffic feedback, which I love, by the way. They're awesome. They've saved me lots of time getting stuck behind a traffic jam on a highway in the past. We just used paper. It was positively barbarian. We would get in our car and drive off with a piece of paper and no cell phone. Can you imagine? Like when I was 16, 17 and would go out and go somewhere, I'd say, bye, mom. And you know, Until I got back home, she didn't know if I was dead in a ditch somewhere. That's why it was so bad not to check in if you were late. It was so bad. Now we just feed photos from a satellite to artificial intelligence programs, and they generate all the maps for us. I mean, it's really great, but the experience of seeing the bigger picture on a paper map, and experiencing the mystery associated with the the trip. I just loved it as a kid. I loved studying the map. I loved the way the roads were coded and the the different ways the size of a city would be indicated, like small towns were black dots, and on the bigger areas like you see in Dallas were always in yellow, and you 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 could find the U.S. highways, and you could find the state highways, and you could see lakes and rivers, and really get a big picture of this journey that you were about to take that the map represented. There were these coordinates, XY coordinates, so there were, there were grids, there were letters across the bottom, if you've ever used these, and numbers across the side, so, oh, that city's at H2, you know, bingo, and then you'd go find the spot and look around and try to find the city. I studied these things as a kid endlessly. I loved studying these maps and thinking about the journey we were about to take, and there was something exciting about planning a journey, uh, and even with the map in hand, I still experienced a little bit of mystery about the adventure that we were about to take, and I was really drawn to that, 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 that mystery. In order to use a road map like this, you have to know your starting point, and you need to choose a destination. You need to have a destination in mind, because it's about getting from where you are to where you want to be. And that's the whole point. So first you need to choose the correct destination. If you want to go to Paris, you have to differentiate between Paris, France and Paris, Texas. It's a big difference. One, you've got to get take a boat or an airplane to get to. The other one, you could drive to. If you want to go to Memphis, you've got to differentiate between Memphis, Tennessee and Memphis, Egypt. There's a big difference. So you have to know where you're going. You've got to have the correct de- destination selected. Now, once you pick the correct destination, you have to choose the route that you'll use to get there, right? You can pick the fastest time, the shortest distance. You can avoid toll roads. You can take the scenic route, which I love to do. Sometimes I'll drive 33 coming home from Oklahoma City and then up Western Road just because I like the hills and the drive. It's beautiful. Uh, you, can, you can go uh, on routes that will take you to places you want to see. So there's a lots a lot of ways to, to choose your route. But still, the anticipation of the trip, the map re- represented, no matter what the route, for me, coupled with that mystery, was something that made the experience exciting as a kid. Now, in life, we have all kinds of practical things that we we have to develop coping skills for. So we develop what I'll call a mental map, right? So so uh, here's an example of what I did when I was first learning to play the guitar. I would draw these diagrams. I mean, I spent hours and pages, did pages and pages and pages of these things. And so the, str- the lines going down represent strings. There's six of them. And the lines going across represent the metal things we call frets, right? And so there's a a different location on every string, on every fret. And so I would draw dots and label them so that I could create this map in my mind of what a scale looked like or what a chord looked like or what an arpeggio looked like. And so once I did all that, all that study, when I picked up the guitar to play and looked at the fretboard, I could project these mental maps onto it and it just opened it all up for me. It demystified the guitar really to a large extent. It takes the mystery out of a practical thing when you have a good map for it, right? So now I'm learning to play the mandolin. So were any of you here on Christmas Eve? I, I played mandolin that night, right? It's really a bright instrument. It's really fun. I was faking the whole thing, faking it, faking it, faking it. So now I'm drawing maps of the mandolin so I can actually learn to play the thing for real. But listen, maps that I developed on the guitar... They don't transfer to the mandolin. The mandolin has four, eight, eight strings, four double strings, and it's tuned like a violin. So, so one of these things is not like the other at all in terms of where your fingers go. So I'm going to be a legit mando player. Just give me time. We'll see. But there are things that we develop, mental maps is what I'll call it, to help us navigate each day successfully. Here's one that is an attempt to, to and I don't know if you can see it. I tried to blow it up so maybe you could see it a little better, about money. So how are you going to deal with money in your life? You have to think about what kind of money exists. There's cash, there's electronic currency, there's Bitcoin, there's notes, bills, there's all these different types. There's apps that let you transfer money now, so you can think about your financial status. Where are you? Do you owe money? Are you out of debt? Do you have savings? You know, transactions that take place, sources of income. That, that's just what we do. It's just a normal part of living and learning to cope with this aspect of life that we would call, call money. Right. Well, we develop things kind of like this. You could illustrate them a lot of different ways, but to deal with things like marriage and singleness, family in general, finances, health, aging, dealing with aging parents, something I'm in the middle of right now, child rearing, vocation, sex, death, leisure, friendship, I mean, you name it, everything that we deal with in life, we, we've developed coping skills and ways of, of navigating through these complicated aspects of life. Accurate maps will help us reach our desired destination successfully, but a faulty map can lead to bad and sometimes even tragic results. But as Christians, we should be navigating life based on truth that won't budge, truth that stays reliable in changing circumstances. Now, there's another kind of map that universally fascinates humans. It's a treasure map. I've never seen one. This is a fake one, obviously. Uh, I've never seen a real one, but I have seen a lot of movies about treasure maps. I saw The Great Race. Does anybody know The Great Race? Anybody? Bueller? One gentleman knows The Great Race. I was eight years old. It came out in 1965. It's the first uh, movie I remember about a treasure map or a treasure hunt. Obviously, it didn't have a big, big impact on the crowd today. So, uh, you know, The Goonies. Goonies was about that. Surely we've got some Goonies fans in here. Goonies? Anybody? Goonies? Whoop, whoop, got got a whoop, whoop on Goonies? All right, Treasure Island, uh, National Treasure, right? The basic function of the treasure map in these stories was like a road map. It was to determine how to get from where you are to where you want to be, but there's one major difference. Treasure maps, like these, are intentionally vague. The map maker wants to find their way to the treasure, but they don't want you to, so if the map falls into the wrong hands, they don't want you to be able to decode it very easily. But like the road map, it does have a destination. It's the treasure. Presumably something rare, something of great value, something highly desirable, something that might fulfill dreams and bring riches. It's like the Count of Monte Cristo finding the gold and then coming back from presumably the dead and reinventing himself completely and having fabulous wealth and great control. It makes for a compelling story. Now, the map of our faith journey more closely resembles a treasure map than a road map, with one huge exception. There is nothing vague about the route on our faith journey. We all want to flourish. We all want to live the good life. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just a human desire. But it should lead us to a treasure of transcendent value, namely Jesus. The world constantly fights against this by offering alternative treasures And maps that pull at our hearts and minds. And the best available map will fail to deliver you to the right place. If you choose the wrong map or the wrong destination. Jesus put it like this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? It's an important question because what we treasure, or another way of saying it, is what we trust and what we hope in functions as a kind of a north star for navigating our lives. We aim our lives, we point ourselves, we set our affections and hopes on that which we believe will fulfill our deepest longings and satisfy our souls. So in this passage that Kyle read before I came up, Jesus is warning against the accumulation of worldly wealth. So I'll read it again for you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth And rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. I don't know if you've experienced it, but we've been burglarized. Someone kicked in the door in an upstairs recording studio I had years ago and yanked the two most expensive pieces of equipment out of that room. It was a sense of violation like I've never experienced before. I know what it is to have a thief break in and steal, and it's awful. I've also had things rust, and I've had moths get into my clothes. Like we know, we know what it's like to have things break down and to be lost to us. And so we really should be wise about putting too much of our hope in those things. Honestly, I've often struggled with this teaching. Compared to most of the rest of the world... I live like a king, and honestly, most of us do. I own a nice home. I have two cars. They start reliably. I get to travel occasionally. I have decent food and clothing. I get to go to the dentist and have medical care. I turn a handle, and clean, drinkable water comes out of a faucet. Five different places in my house. Five. Uh, So many people in the world don't even have a faucet, much less drinkable water in their house. It's incredible. I live like a rich man. I have a machine to wash my clothes. And I have a different one to wash my dishes. I have an electric toothbrush. I mean, life is good. By the world's standards, I'm a materially rich man. But sometimes it's not enough. I'm serious. My struggle with this particular teaching of Jesus sounds something like this. And I'm just going to confess out loud, God's here. He, he hears what I'm saying. You know, you know he's here, right? He knows you're breathing. He knows your heart's beating. So let me just talk to God for a minute, and you can listen in. It sounds like this Lord, I I struggle genuinely to reconcile this. I'm a 21st century aging American. I'm older than I look, you guys. Uh, I thought that would be funny, but not so much. (laughs) We retire, we have IRAs, Uh, we regard accumulation of wealth as success, don't we? Don't we all do that truly? Don't we regard that as wisdom? Lay up up treasures for yourself when you retire, for when you're old, you won't be making money. I mean, that's our operating philosophy in this culture. Besides, today we live a lot longer than people did in the first century of Palestine. So, Lord, there's a huge gap between my productive years and when I'm going to die. I need that money to last. And I don't want to really have to just trust you, this Christian platitude, Lord. Like, really? I know you said that not even a sparrow falls, that you don't know about it. You said even the hairs on my head have been counted, and that number is shrinking with every passing week. That I'm much greater value than a sparrow. So here's the key. Listen, I should not be afraid. It's very clear. And yet, at times, I really am. I really am. Is it just me? Am I standing up here alone? Does anybody else feel it? Just nod your head so nobody else can see. I want to know. Yeah, thank you. I've got a hand wave in the back. Like, like I know that there have got to be others in this room that feel the same thing that I'm feeling, this gnawing, aching thing that won't let me go. Doesn't our obsession with wealth accumulation seem counter to what the Bible teaches here? Modern retirement income was first innovated in 1889. That's 131 years ago. It's not that long. By Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in Germany, he was trying to stave off the influence of Marxists. And he was trying to push older workers out to get younger, more productive workers into the workforce, improve their GDP, right? So here in the U.S., the government implemented Social Security 85 years ago. I mean, the theory of general relativity came out in way before that. So it's a very recent innovation in the sweep of history. Jesus teaches that we should set our hearts on something that far surpasses anything that we could have in this world or in this life. He's given us a treasure map that does not obscure the truth, and it lays out the journey in no uncertain terms. It's very clear. All of mankind for all of history shares the same starting point. Romans 3.23 All have sinned. Everyone in this room, me, you, our parents, our kids, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have the same starting point in our spiritual journey The Bible describes our treasure and our destination in so many ways. I had to settle on something for the sake of time, so I chose 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. It reads this way. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. So we know on the grand spiritual journey of life where we've all begun, and we know what our destination is. It's to be with God for all eternity. The route, very simply put, is found in John 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth. In the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know it sounds a little corny to compare the Bible to a treasure map, and i 'm actually not comparing the Bible to it i 'm just comparing our journey of faith to a treasure map because I think it 's an apt metaphor for understanding things about our journey. So here we are this morning. I think most of us in the room would claim to have placed our faith in Jesus. Maybe some of you haven 't that 's okay. would love to talk to you after the service. But this has led us on a faith journey with God as the object of our worship. So how well are we following this very clear map that we've been given? A week before last, Zane talked about the language that we use as a good indicator of what we actually treasure, like where the gospel fits into our lives, whether our stated values actually match up with the values that we're living out for real in an everyday life as we think through all these mental maps and cope with life. Last week, Jim taught through the story of the prodigal son in a way I have not heard before to help us understand better where we are in our faith journey. And they laid an excellent foundation for understanding whether we actually treasure our faith and whether we've made Jesus truly central and preeminent in our lives. So my topic today is the practice of worship. What does all this have to do with worship? Well, our willingness, or maybe more importantly, Our reluctance to fully embrace corporate worship indicates the extent to which we've set our hope and trust in Jesus rather than on other things. It reveals whether or not we hold back part of our heart. We take a little bit of that heart and that trust, we stick it in our back pocket, just in case God isn't quite enough at some point. I mean, I know I do that. There are little pieces of me, I don't want to give them. Listen, you can't authentically and fully worship a God that you don't fully trust, to whom you've fully surrendered. The Bible describes this as being double-minded. And James literally wrote, you shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord when you're double-minded. We need to be wholehearted. But I have a deeper struggle than just the teaching about wealth accumulation. Maybe you can identify with it. I have a very stubborn, sense of brokenness inside that sometimes nags me into looking at things besides God to fix me. Now, there's a world of difference between before I came to faith and after I profess faith in Jesus. I've experienced incredible forgiveness, restoration, and healing. God has made all the difference. But still, I have this, this ache that just won't cure. Sometimes I hurt and I don't know why. And I don't think it's just me. There's no end to what the world will offer in response to this struggle. Promise to make us whole, and most of us, I think, buy into it at some level, what the world wants to sell. It's it's far more than the accumulation of wealth I talked about before, though. It's not just that. There's alternate maps and substitute treasure that appeal to us from everywhere they look they just offer counterfeit truth by promising to heal that ache we carry around this this gnawing feeling of being incomplete and not quite good enough that part of you remains broken inside the feeling or thought that you know things aren't quite right but but if only if only i had the right friends if i had the right spouse maybe if i had the right clothes or the right house Maybe enough money to retire at ease so I could travel and go and do as I please. To be able to say that I've earned the right and no one can tell me what to do. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am going to be invincible against the chaos of this uncontrollable and hostile world that I face. I know people that do that. In a room of this size, I imagine that some here are chasing after that fix. And it's completely foolishness. It's utterly futile. I have a vivid imagination, right? It can run amok with imagining alternative realities that might ease my pain. I can compare myself to others that seem more fortunate than I am and wonder where I went wrong or why life's not fair. I focus on the things I don't have and imagine what could help me get them and what life would be like if I had them. My bucket list has an airplane on it. I want to be a pilot. I want to get to go fly, see my kids in Florida and Houston. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I could really obsess about that, and make myself miserable that I don't have it, right? And just scheme, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust God. It would be fun, though. <laughs> I, can just, I can pursue distractions to keep my mind off the things that bother me, and, of course, it's all futility. So I've recognized this tendency in me that I've, I've always had. And so for years, I have prayed this prayer. God, help me to want what I have, not what I don't. Help me to find contentment in the life that you've granted me as it is and not to wish for what looks like greener grass on the other side of the fence. Look, condos in cool places and second homes are not evil. IRAs and investment portfolios are not the devil. Wanting healthy, meaningful relationships is normal and good. But these things, they have no inherent evil on their own. They're morally neutral, essentially all... Material things in particular are just morally neutral, but the evil rises up in us to the extent that we invest too much of our hope, our trust, and our identity in them. We need the discernment and the wisdom that comes from the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God that know us, that surround us, in order to have the discernment necessary to guard against false treasure as a substitute for trusting God. Faulty maps lead us to a place that promised to deliver human flourishing, which we all want. We all want to live the good life. That's not wrong. God has placed that in us, but they leave us all the more broken because they just appeal to our sinful nature. They fracture our ability to fully trust and worship God. And I know many of you here freely worship fully in spirit and in truth and with joy. So to you, I say, keep on, faithful brothers and sisters. Continue to find your joy in him. Worship him freely as he deserves. But I know some of us here hold back, opting out of part of our corporate worship together. There are some who find it hard to wholeheartedly worship Jesus. I think at least part of the struggle to worship comes from this hey, we have all the facts, so we just adopt a glib attitude towards our Maker. Yeah, it's another fact of life. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. That's good. I have a house, I have cars. we're just glib about it, right? And so few things have the power to amaze us anymore. We no longer see the world as a mysterious place as we make our way through it. So why don't the songs we sing capture our imagination? We sing amazing truth in here every Sunday when we gather. Why can the prayers we pray seem rote or in vain? Why can the communion we share seem hollow or just perfunctory like an empty ritual how do the messages we hear sometimes pass into one ear and out the other? Where you just walk out and you're not even sure what you heard that morning? It happens to me. With apologies. Never when you're preaching, Jim. <laughs> ha ha, that was funny. Maybe not. We need someone. If you have to tell people it's funny, it's, it's really not. It's a failure. We need something transcendent and mysterious that's unchanging and powerful, unquestionably good to put our hope in. Something that delivers on the promise of healing and wholeness. Something to worship that is so much better than anything in this world. As Christians, we worship Yahweh. We worship God. We worship Jesus. All sort of equivalent ideas there. We do it corporately here on Sunday morning. So this entire time together is devoted to doing the things that constitute the New Testament church these practices form and shape us into flourishing citizens or at least they're designed to help shape us into flourishing citizens of the kingdom of god no one's going to be able to convince you or talk you into loving the music or taking a message to heart finding fulfillment in communion or believing in the prayers that we have here no one can talk you into finding encouragement in the community surrounding you if you prefer to isolate yourself or to live generously or love sacrificially so If you struggle with any of these things, what can you do? I mean, I don't think the answer is just let's define it with clarity and then try a lot harder. Come on, guys. Everybody sing. Let's go. That's not going to really do it. You know, enthusiasm isn't the answer. Exhorting you just to jump in is not the answer. The answer is found, I think, extremely well expressed in Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses. It says it this way. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. We see two main things in this passage we need to do. One is to lay aside hindrances and sin, and the other is diligent, faithful living focused on our Lord Jesus. I don't really need to say much about the laying aside sin part except to say this. The way out goes through repentance and confession. So this morning, if you find yourself caught in sin, repent to God and then find a trusted, mature brother or sister to whom you can confess. This will lead to freedom from carrying the burden of guilt and confirm God's forgiveness that's available to you leading to freedom from the grip that it has on you and setting you free to worship with a whole heart. Sin is one of the reasons you may find it difficult to fully engage in worship. But for the second part, we're going to do what the Scripture instructs us now, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus for a few minutes. And since we're Trinitarian in our understanding of God, I will treat Jesus and God somewhat interchangeably in this, so you know, go with me on it. It's a little fluid. So the best place to start is usually at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. God is the creator. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Probably as well-known a verse as John 3.16. Like anyone who's familiar with Christian theology knows that we believe God created everything. John put it a little bit differently. And he gave us a little more depth of understanding when he said it this way in the first three verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. This English word, word, comes from the Greek word logos, meaning the, the exact image or the representation of the Father. So Jesus, the word means Jesus here, if you don't know that. And it says, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Theologians would use this term to describe it, ex nihilo, In other words, everything that exists was created from absolutely nothing. Nothing existed before God spoke it into existence. Space and time did not exist. I have no ability to imagine that, right? This is a straight-up, complete, mind-blowing mystery. We will never, ever have the capacity to understand how a being can exist outside of space and time because that's all we know. It's all we have the ability to understand. And that's why we will continue to worship for all eternity Worship will never cease, because at the resurrection, we will be fully known by him and will live in his presence. But we will always uh, He will always be an infinite and beyond the grasp of finite beings like us. He is and ever will be good, merciful, loving, kind, and com- a completely bewildering mystery. Worship will go on forever because he will always be beyond our grasp. Now, in this culture, we are a Western post-enlightenment, scientifically thinking culture. And it has falsely tried to demystify our existence and explain everything through science. So we've lost our sense of wonder largely and the the ever-present transcendent mystery of God that I think those that lived prior to that time probably had. The, The universe looked crazy, uncontrollable, mysterious to them. Science can describe the universe, but it can't explain the nature of it—it it can fool us into thinking we actually grasp the reality of it, and therefore rob our sense of transcendence. So here's an example: ninety-one point four million miles. That is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Well, that explains it. There's no mystery there anymore. I got that. Okay. Well, let's think about this a second. I can ninety-one point four. I can kind of—I can grasp that in my mind. That's not crazy. I can see a mile from the correct vantage point. I mean, that's not crazy. Now, a million? Okay, I can write it down, and I know in the abstract what it looks like. I can't contain a million things in my brain to save my soul. That's way beyond my ability. But you string these things together, that is, it would take you 21 years flying 500 miles an hour constantly to go that far. I mean, that's crazy. It's huge. My brain can't contain it. Now, the light from the sun takes 8 minutes and 19 seconds to get to the earth. So think about this. When you're outside and you see where the sun is and you feel the heat from the sun, that's not where it actually is at that moment. Roll the clock forward eight minutes. That's where the sun actually is, emitting the light that will then get to us in eight minutes from now. A little bit crazy, huh? Okay, let's, let's extend that even further. Think about the stars. The farthest stars away in our galaxy are 300,000 light years away. That means the distance that it takes light, traveling at 186,000 miles every second, took 300,000 years to get from there to here. So I walk out and I look at the night sky. I see a star. The photons hitting my eye were emitted 300,000 years ago, traveling unimpeded through space, they hit the back of my eye going 186,000 miles a second. I don't know how they don't drill a hole in my head, but but they don't. It causes a chemical reaction that then sends an, impulse, an electrical impulse down my optic nerve into somewhere in my brain, and I stand there breathing with my heart beating, thinking I see a star in the sky. And that star isn't there anymore. That's where it was 300,000 years ago. There are stars that are millions of light years away, billions of... When you look at the night sky, what you're seeing is light that was emitted in eons past, in ancient times, long before man ever walked the earth. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, I I honestly don't know what would. It's awesome. It's mysterious. And God created all of that. He's bigger than the biggest thing we can possibly think of. Now, is that enough to inspire you to worship, to trust him? Not only is he our creator, he sustains all things. Two passages I want to cite that describes him this way. All things were created through him and for him, referring to Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Hebrews, it puts it this way. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. This is the logos we heard about in the first chapter of John. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. God is literally holding everything together in the universe right now. There are any number of things we could name that he holds together. He holds together governments, cultures, economies, atoms and molecules, oceans and planets. So as I thought about what holds things together, I thought about gravity, right? That's gravity. What's so mysterious about that? I can't jump up and touch the ceiling because of gravity. You can't drop the mic without gravity, right? There's a whole lot of cool things without gravity that won't happen. And so I looked up some definitions of gravity. Here's how Newton explained it. Newton's gravity. Every mass, you can think of planets and stars, attracts every other mass in the universe. And the gravitational force between two bodies is proportional to the product of their masses and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them. Got a headache yet? Just wait. Here's the algebraic equation that describes the force of gravity. Now, we're really getting a headache. So the math geeks in the room probably love this. The science geeks like me probably like this. But I have sweated and prayed over a way of expressing this to you in the simplest of terms. So here's the Broadway paraphrase of Newton's Law of Gravity. Big things attract more than small things. Close things attract more than far things. You're welcome. (laughs) Now you get it, right? Yes, thank you, Steve. Uh, It just takes all the mystery out of it, doesn't it? Now we know how gravity works. No, we don't. We have no idea how it works. I don't know what's pulling me down. Uh, This is crazy, but wait. Einstein comes along. General theory of relativity in 1915. Oh, wow. Now we're going to really get the mystery out of this thing. Here's what he said. Let me turn the page and read this accurately. Einstein's general theory of relativity, which was proposed in 1915, gang, describes gravity not as a force, but as a consequence of the curvature of space-time caused by the uneven distribution of mass. Okay, wow. Like the math for this is partial differential equations. So you math geeks will know what that is. I am not showing you the equations because we would all get a migraine. But again, I labored and sweated and I came up with the Broadway paraphrase so that you too, at the party, the next time someone is wondering about the, the general relativity, you can say, hey, big things curve space all the time. A whole bunch. I didn't say it quite right, but that's general relativity right there. Big things curve space a whole bunch all the time. That's it. You've got it. That's not so hard, is it? It's amazing. It just sucks all the mystery out of gravity. No, no, no. Like, space-time, it's all one word. It's like one thing. What's that? And how does it curve? Space is nothing. How does curving space make me weigh 200 pounds? That's a complete mystery to me. Is there some invisible rope pulling down? Like, I don't know. It's an incredible mystery. We'll never understand how gravity actually does what it does. We can describe what it looks like and how it behaves and how it operates on things. The the the, The actual nature of it, we'll never understand that. These descriptions, while they're useful for predicting the behavior of the physical universe, don't remove the mystery of God's creation. They actually make it bigger for me. God and his creation remain increasingly awesome overwhelmingly mysterious and beautiful. And it points to the answer for the need we all have for something so much bigger than ourselves, something transcendent and unchanging. Now, I love the way creation blows my mind because I'm kind of a science nerd. Uh, You know, I have an engineering degree, studied physics in college. I love this stuff. I know it's not true for everybody. There's so many other things about God that we can look at that we can fix our eyes on Jesus to grasp Things that are far more personal than stars that are millions of light years away. Psalm 103, 8 through 14, describes God beautifully in these ways. It reads this way, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins deserved. As our sins deserve, or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows what we are made of, remembering That we are dust. I have no idea why God has chosen to show me compassion. The extent of his patience toward me. To cleanse me from my sin. To guard me with his faithful love. To call me his child. To be my father. I grew up fatherless. And looking back, somehow I know he was always there as my heavenly father. Guiding me when I didn't even know it all of these things are true and I don't know why I just know that he has it's incredibly personal and precious and for me to believe in him and trust in him is as much a miracle and mystery as the stars that are millions of light years away all of this ignites the desire in me to worship him it makes me want to surrender and let him have it all So in the face of a chaotic and often hostile world, we do not need to try and exert control over our circumstances to force our way into a flourishing life. Control is a fool's errand anyway because it's a complete illusion. We need a God that is in control, and our God is. God relates to us in so many wonderful ways. Here's a list of some of them. He's our provider, our defender. He's our redeemer. He's our father. He shepherds us. He heals us. He's our friend, our counselor, our savior, and our king. He's everywhere and always present. He's all powerful, all knowing. He's completely good, and he's forever faithful. So now when I see a sunrise that's so beautiful, or I walk out at night and see the stars, when prodigals return home, when the lost come to faith, and when I see others serving and loving the church and the larger community, when God's people show generosity, when I'm surrounded by a worshiping people, and when I consider all that he is and all that he's done, how can I hold back part of my heart When we join together on Sunday morning for corporate worship, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to hold back. I choose to repent of my sin, to surrender my pride, and give him the worship that he deserves. Now, everything that's about to follow what I just said is an opportunity to respond to this message. In a moment, we will pray and then we'll sing. We'll share the Lord's Supper. We will give. After we dismissed, you have a few minutes to visit, share, and fellowship together. And so we're going to stop for a moment. We're going to pause and we're going to reflect before we do all these things. And I encourage you to reflect on what you've just heard about God. The things that inspire you to want to trust him, to want to honor him, to praise him, to rest in him. He's great, he's good, and we can trust him. And then I will pray over our time of reflection before we sing. So I invite you to close your eyes and give your attention to the Lord.